Welcome to Whitechapel Church Online. You're currently listening to preaching from our Sunday services. We believe that when the preaching happens, that collectively we're hearing the Word of God, and that God's Word has the power to change who we are. We also believe that God can meet you right where you're at, and that He has a Word specifically for you. We hope that you enjoy today's sermon, and we would love to have you at an in-person service. Head over to whitechapelchurch.com to get more info. Enjoy the sermon, and be blessed. If you have a Bible, if you'll turn over to Acts chapter 24, uh, we're going to continue going through the book of Acts and look at Acts chapter 24. Uh, we've been studying in the book of Acts for a good little while, and we're going to continue studying, uh, and almost, we're almost finished here with the book of Acts. Uh, but if you remember what has happened to the Apostle Paul, just as a little bit of a, a recap, uh, Paul knew that the Holy Spirit had directed him to Jerusalem, and uh, Paul was wrestling with uh, the Holy Spirit saying, you need to go to Jerusalem. Because Paul knew that whenever he got to Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested and charged uh, from the religious leaders. But Paul was obedient. He went to Jerusalem. He went through the religious practice to purify himself and to prepare himself. He spent time in the temple uh, for about a week. And then uh, finally the religious leaders brought some, tri- uh, brought some charges against uh, the apostle Paul. And they put him on trial. That took place in the last couple of chapters. And we, we went through that and what that actually looked like in Paul's life. And so now at the end of chapter 23, they, Paul actually said, hey, I, am, I need to be tried in a Roman court. And so they've actually sent Paul for that. He's in a place called Caesarea that is right on the Mediterranean Sea. And we'll see what's going to happen to Paul as they begin to prepare him to actually be sent back to be held in a Roman prison. But here he is before a governor, a ruler of of Caesarea in this specific area in Israel. And he is actually pleading his case. And so what we're going to see, we're going to read through all chapter 24. uh, And it gets a little bit long, but just to break it down for you of what that looks like. What we're going to see at the very beginning are the charges against Paul. So the religious leaders have said, Paul has done bad against the religious law. And so we'll see that. And then we're going to see Paul's defense. And then we're going to see what happens in a type of a punishment. So if you'll follow along in Romans, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 24, we'll read through the entire chapter, and then we're going to come back and look at some key verses here. But I want to read the whole thing so that you can grasp what's taking place here. Acts chapter 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias sent down, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere, in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We found this man, this is Paul, to be a troublemaker. Stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. 
by examining him, you yourself will be able to learn the truth about all of these charges that we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. And then here's Paul's defense in verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges that they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Now, the, the followers of the way followers of Jesus. These are the ones that we would say are Christians. These are the ones that actually believe that Jesus is the Messiah who came to save us of our sins and prepare a way for the Holy Spirit's arrival. And so Paul's admitting that in verse 14. And then in the middle of 14, he says, I believe everything that agrees with the law, and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I'll decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul, discouraged, or, um, as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. There's a huge transition that takes place from that verse into verse 27. Now listen to 27. When two years had passed... Paul was in prison here for two years. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcus Festus and became, and, but, I'm sorry, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. And so here's, uh, give you a little bit of uh, background here before we dive into what Paul is actually saying here. There is a huge disagreement that's taking place between the Jews. There are some religious, religious Jews that are exclusively looking at the Old Testament. And they are living under the Old Testament law and do not choose to acknowledge Jesus Christ was who he said he was and believe in his death, his burial, and resurrection. They are holding to what we would say is the Old Testament law. 
And then there is a group of Jews who are part of the way. They are followers of Jesus. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. They trusted in what Jesus said, and they saw that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, that Jesus did die for sins. He was buried. He was resurrected, and then he ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is significant because there was a huge disagreement in those that were a part of the temple or the church of the day. Some believed in Jesus. Some did not believe in Jesus. We would see later on through some of Paul's prison letters that he wrote that there were even some people that were believing that Jesus died for sins, and then there were some believing that Jesus uh, could have been resurrected, maybe not resurrected, maybe resurrected. It doesn't really matter because Jesus actually died for sins. And Paul is addressing all of this head-on here, and we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's words in how he actually does that. But before I begin, I want to ask a question of you. How important is it to you that Jesus rose from the dead? I don't know if you've ever thought about this question or not. Like, we talk about Jesus, and we read through the Scriptures, and we often will say, Jesus died for my sins. But we don't talk a lot about the resurrection. We sing about the resurrection, and we talk about the resurrection at Easter. And we talk about Jesus' bloodshed, and we talk about the significance of that, and we talk about how Jesus came and he died to take, to be the final payment for all of my sins. But how important is it to you that Jesus actually rose from the dead? This is a very important question that I think that we actually have an answer for, that we wrestle with, and we think about often, not just Jesus' death, not just Jesus' payment for our sins, but also how Jesus conquered death, and he actually arose. Think about that. Anybody can die, right? Every one of us, unless the Lord comes back, we are actually going to die. But there's only been one who has conquered death, and that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus did all of that within just a matter of days. You see, God could have atoned for our sins in so many different ways, but he chose to come and wrap himself in flesh and pay the price for our sins himself, but he did not end with just his death and his burial. But instead, three days later, the Holy Spirit allowed the functions of Jesus' physical body to begin to operate again. His lungs began to breathe. His heart began to pump. His wounds were healed for the most part. They were still visible. But Jesus was able to come back to life conquering death. This is the power of the hope that we have for the here in the now as well as for in the future. And this is really Paul's message here in Acts chapter 25. He's talking about it. Look again at verse 14 with me, if you would. He says in verse 14, so this is Paul's defense. They brought charges against Paul, and Paul is sharing back how he was living his life. He's pointing out uh, things that were false, and he's telling us exactly what he did. In verse 14, 15, and 16, I want you to catch Paul's words. He says, however, I admit that I worship God 
the God of our fathers, as a follower of the way of Jesus, being a part of the Christians, which they are actually calling a sect. You see, the old religious leaders are saying, this is fake, it's made up, it is not actually true that Jesus died and he was resurrected. And Paul is saying, it is true. I believe in that. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I believe that what Jesus said is actually true. And then he goes on in, in the end of 14, end of 15, and 16. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And Paul is saying, I agree with you all. I agree with the old, what we would say is the Old Testament. I agree with the law. I agree with the prophets. I agree that that was from God. However, God has provided a new way and fulfilled the law and fulfilled the prophets. So we don't go through ritual, but instead he provided himself as a payment for sin and then defeated the consequence of sin. This is the power of what Paul is saying here. And those that are standing around and hearing what Paul is saying as defense, I'm sure there's an anger that is stirring up inside of them because Paul is now saying not only did God speak through the law and the prophets, but now God has spoken in the flesh through Jesus Christ and given of himself a payment for our sins and defeated the consequence of sin, which was death. This is what Paul is actually saying in verse 15. He goes on, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And then skip down to verse 25. In verse 25, Paul says, just the beginning part there, as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid, and then he said, that's enough for now. Go away, I'm going to maybe send for you a little bit later on. What Paul was talking about here was not only the payment for sins. And let me tell you, if that's all God did, oh my, what a gift that he has given to us. To think that God came in the flesh and he paid the sin debt that I actually owe, that each of us actually owes. My goodness, what a gift, free gift that God has actually given to us. But that's not all that Jesus did. He not only died and paid our sin price, but catch this, and I want you to grasp the power of the words that I say to you today. Jesus not only died to pay the sin debt that each of us owe, but he went a step further and he took away the power of sin through his resurrection so that sin has no power over any of our bodies. He broke that chain through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this is so important. And this is why the resurrection is more important than just celebrating on Easter morning. But it is something that every single one of us can experience every single day of our life. The power of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is talking about here. Verse 14 and 15 and 16, we see the power of what Paul is saying. In verse 25, Paul is actually paving a way for that to actually happen. So how important is it to you? that Jesus rose from the dead. 
Let me tell you, it is so important for every single one of us because therein lies the power that every single one of us need for the infilling of the Holy Spirit so that sin does not have power for us. But do you know what the enemy does? The enemy will always cause doubt to sink into our minds. We cannot comprehend how someone could conquer death and come back to life. And sometimes when we read it in the Scripture, we just read through it, and it's just as powerful as words are on a page. And we miss what actually God was doing when we read about His resurrection in the Gospels and then throughout the rest of the New Testament. But we focus on the death, and we focus on the cross, so much so that we see crosses everywhere. We put them on top of our churches. We put them on top of steeples. We hang them up in our houses of worship. We wear them around our necks. We put them on the walls. We think often about the cross. But think about the number of crosses that you've seen and the number of the empty tombs that you've actually seen. You see, sometimes we focus too much on the cross and we forget about the empty tomb. And I'm here to say that they are of equal importance for the walk that God is asking of us to live every single day in our relationship with Him. But the enemy allows doubt to creep into our minds because we can't understand how it's possible. And so we don't think about it often. We, we, we don't begin to, to comprehend what was taking place. And whenever doubt comes into our mind and we put the resurrection on the back shelf and we say, yes, it happened, we don't think about it, we don't talk about it except for on Easter once a year. And whenever it's just sitting there, what the enemy does is he puts doubt in our mind. And the way that that doubt works is it causes us to begin to doubt the Word of God. Or we'll say, well, this section is more important than that section. And so we, we can comprehend this section, and, and we'll read through this section, and we'll apply it to our life, but we cannot comprehend that one. And when the enemy uses doubt, what he is actually doing is discounting the Word of God. But what I want to tell you is the Word of God, the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, is God's Word that is flawless, and it is truth that needs to be applied to our lives. And so many of us wrestle and say, God, would you speak to me? Would you please speak to me? I just need you to guide me, and I need you to direct me. When the truth of the matter is that God has spoken to us. This is his word, and any doubt from the enemy has to be severed and silenced through the power of the word of God. Another way that the, that the enemy brings doubt into our mind is he causes us to doubt sometimes that Jesus was actually the Messiah. That's what's taking place with these religious people here in Acts chapter 25, where they've actually brought charges against the Apostle Paul. Some of them are saying, Jesus was not the Messiah. He was a great prophet. Some of them are saying, he was a good guy. He was a rabbi. He was a religious leader, but he was not the Messiah. And then there's are saying, no, I know that Jesus was the Messiah. I was with him. I saw the things that he did. I was there when he was crucified. I was there at the empty tomb. And so we know that Jesus was the Messiah. Listen, Jesus dying on the cross did not prove that he was the Messiah. What proved that he was the Messiah is going to the empty tomb and seeing there was no body inside of there. Because if you remember, there were other people that were crucified on the cross with Jesus, right? 
There were others who actually died. It was a common way of execution during that day. Jesus dying did not prove that he was the Messiah. It was the empty tomb that proved that he was the Messiah. And this is, uh, in essence, what Paul is guiding us to here in Acts chapter 25. Both are equally important and should never be separated. They have to always be together. Because what we see God coming in the flesh for these few days of work where he was, where Jesus died, he was buried, and then he arose, spent about 40 days after, and gave some instructional words that we'll go back and see at the beginning of Acts here in just a minute, and then was raised and was seated at the right hand of the Father, as Pastor Jordan actually read to us this morning. Jesus proved that he was God. By fulfilling the predictions of his death and his return from the grave. And this is actually being debated. That's actually, actually going on and on here in the charges and the trial for the Apostle Paul. As I got to thinking about the significance and the importance of Jesus' death on the cross and then walking out of the empty tomb... I thought about a hymn that I remember singing as a, as a young boy growing up in church. It was a hymn that was written a, a few hundred years ago, actually by Charles Wesley. And I looked up the uh, significance of this specific hymn this week. And this is, this is uh, the name of the hymn is, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. And this is a little bit of that backstory uh, behind this hymn. Charles Wesley was suffering about the pleurisy in May of 1738. It was while he and his brother were studying in London. And at the time, Charles was plagued by an extreme doubt in his life and in his faith. He had taken to the bed with a sickness on May 21st, and he was attended by a group of Christians who offered him testimony of their faith as well as basic physical care. And he was deeply affected by the love and testimony from the other believers. So he opened his Bible, and he found himself deeply affected by the words and at peace in this moment with God. Shortly, his strength, his strength began to return, and he wrote of his experience in his journal, and he counted it as a renewal of his faith. When his brother John had a similar experience on May 24th, the two men met and they sang a hymn that Charles had written in praise of this renewal. And one year later from that experience, Wesley was taken by the Holy Spirit with the urge to write another hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. And this hymn was a commemoration of the renewal of his faith. And it took the form of an 18-stanza poem and the, seventh, the 17th verse says this, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And now it's the first verse of the shorter hymn by that name. But this hymn celebrates the work that Christ did in Wesley in overcoming sin and rendered powerless the attack from the, the enemy against John Wesley. This is the first verse, and then I've highlighted what we would say is the fifth verse, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace, and listen 
to these highlighted words from the hymn of John Wesley, celebrating the renewal of what God had done in his life. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. And so we think in this moment, when reading these words, we think, well, this is what took place on the cross. No, this is not what took place on the cross. This is what took place from the empty tomb. You see, on the empty cross, Jesus paid for sin. But through the empty tomb, he broke the power of sin so that sin would not have power over our life. And so there's two separate acts of what Christ did here reminding us of the two separate acts that we have to follow forward in our, con in our acts of grace. We have to accept the payment for our sin, and then we have to move forward through the power of the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which was made possible through the cross and the empty tomb, so that any power over us of sin is actually broken in our lives. Two separate things that are vital for us, and we think the cross is sufficient. But Jesus not only died for your sins, but he also defeated sin's power. And that was done through the empty tomb. This is what Paul is actually discussing, and he's actually saying here, I believe this, Paul says. I'm following Jesus. I have taken Christ for the payment of my sin, but I have also had the power of sin, broken the power of canceled sin in my life, and I'm actually living this out now. This is why they brought the charges against the apostle Paul. I read something this week online that was so powerful that I want to share with you from a blog. The resurrection defeated God's enemy. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It didn't happen on the cross. The cross was for us. The empty tomb defeated God's enemy that brought about the need for the cross to begin with. The resurrection defeated God's enemy. The author goes on to say, from the moment of Satan's original rebellion until the day of the cross, the devil fought viciously and cunningly to overthrow the kingdom of God. At the crucifixion, Satan must have thought that he had provided the final and, de and decisive blow against this decades-old war. But this was the devil's most serious miscalculation. The cross was not a sign of defeat. The cross was only the beginning of heaven's triumph. When Jesus arose from the dead, the power of sin and death was forever shattered. Because, the because of the resurrection, we never have to fear Satan, and we never have to fear death again. The power and victory of the cross and the resurrection are available for us today. But do you know what happens? We believe in Jesus. And we take Jesus for the payment of our sin. And we think, I'm okay. I'm okay right now. Because Jesus paid for my sin debt. And then we go on living weak and powerless lives. Forgetting that the power of the resurrection is available for each and every one of us. So we believe Jesus paid for our sin. We don't have a sin problem any longer, but you do. 
unless you move forward to the resurrection and you see that in the resurrection, Jesus defeated sin. You see, it's not only enough to have the debt paid for in your life, you have to have sin defeated in your lives. And whenever we only focus on the cross and we forget the power available to us in the resurrection, we just have settled for living defeated lives in the right here and the right now. And when Jesus, or when Paul was talking about being followers of the way, these were people that were living radical lives who had accepted the payment of their sin and were figuring out what it looked like for sin to be defeated and applying the power of the resurrection every single day in their life. This is what Paul is saying here. We are living lives in relationship with Jesus and filled with His Spirit so that sin is not attacking us, or when it does attack, it doesn't have power over us any longer. You see, what we have to do as followers of Jesus Christ is go further in our faith and get to the place to where sin does not have power over us. And this is the hardest but easiest thing there is for us to do. If you'll turn back to Acts chapter 1, I want to show you the order of the events that Jesus actually laid out here for his disciples. And in Acts chapter 1, I want to read verse 5, 6, and 7, and 8 here. So you remember Jesus was crucified. He arose. He spent about 40 days here, and he's ready to ascend to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And just before he leaves, he's giving his disciples some very important words. And these important words are going to be vital so that they live lives where sin has been defeated. For Acts chapter 1, verse 5, 6, 7, and 8. These are Jesus' words. Well, we'll go back to 4. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, that's Jesus, he gave them this command. So listen to this. So we've gone to the cross We've gone through the empty tomb. We've got about 40 days. And Jesus said, this is my last command to you. Listen, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not, for you, it's not for you to know the time or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Do you see what Jesus has actually pointed to here? He said, don't just get stuck with the cross and the empty tomb. But realize that it was the cross and the empty tomb that paved the way to make possible the arrival of the Holy Spirit. You see, in Acts, or I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were trying to be good in their relationship with God. And they couldn't do it. They failed. So sin entered into that relationship and separated mankind. So there had to be a payment for their sin, and there had to be someone to come to defeat that power of the sin as well. And so God began to put in place the plan for that to actually happen, where he would come and he would actually do that. But Jesus did not come only to die, and he did not come only to rise from the grave. 
There was a next step in this process. And Jesus said to those just before he went to be seated at the right hand of the Father, hold on just a second. You need the Holy Spirit in your life is what Jesus is saying. Because you don't have power over sin. Adam and Eve didn't have power over sin. They tried. They lived perfect lives up until they sinned. And then we being born with that sin nature embedded in us because of our humanness, because of our flesh, we're born into a sinful world already. And so we did not have the capability that they actually had. But we were born with a desire in us to be sinners because we were. And then we get to the cross and we get to the empty tomb and we think, okay, that's enough. I'm now in right relationship with Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, it's not enough. You need the Holy Spirit. You see, the purpose of Jesus' life was to usher in the arrival of the presence of God through His Holy Spirit in each and every one of us. He defeated sin. He took the power away from sin and made us possible to have the relationship that Adam and Eve actually had with God when God was with them. He talked to them. And so what God then did is bring about His Spirit so that he could infill us, so that we then become the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we think it's just the cross and just the empty tomb. But Jesus said there's so much more that God has for us through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And listen, I am not discounting what Jesus did on the cross. I'm not discounting the empty tomb because those things gave us access to the presence of God. What I am saying is there is a next step in this that we have to listen to Jesus' words that Paul has actually talked about in the infilling of the Holy Spirit for us. So that then we live lives where sin is powerless in our lives. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, Paul said, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And so his resurrection paved the way for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, as Pastor Jordan was reading at the end of the chapter, it transition us, transitions us into what he was saying. Romans 8, 5. Paul again here says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit actually desires. Paul saying, you got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus said at the beginning of Acts chapter 1. you got to be filled with the Spirit. That is what renders sin powerless in your life. It's not being good. It's not doing your best. It's not doing everything you can to live the Christian life. It's the Holy Spirit inside of you. The power for our life is the Holy Spirit, which is God himself living inside of all of us. It's not trying to be more loving. It's not trying to be more compassionate. It's not trying to be less lying or less mean or less evil-spirited. It is the Holy Spirit providing access to the very throne of God that makes each one of us holy. You remember the command of God? Be holy. You are my people. So be holy just as I am holy. 
Well, how's that possible? It's possible because the cross. It's possible because of the empty tomb. And it's possible because of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But it takes those coupled together to give us the access that is, very, that is needed in every one of our lives. Paul went on to say in Romans 8, 9 this. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Paul says, it's the Spirit of God that lives in you. You've got to have the Spirit of God actually living inside of you. So if this is true, and it's true, the Scriptures laid it out for us. Paul has lived his life, and he's now ready to give his life for this very thing. If this is true, the question for us is, what's next? How do we get to this place? How do we live the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and the infilling of the Holy Spirit every single day of our life? Now remember, Acts chapter 24 was Paul's defense. He's been arrested, had a makeshift trial before the religious leaders. They sent him over to Caesarea in front of Felix. And the governor here is trying to figure out what is next for the apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul stands and he actually gives his defense. And this is the defense that is vital in his life. Because this is going to determine whether he's set free or whether he's in prison or whether he's actually executed. So these are some very important words that the Apostle Paul are talking about. And then after Paul gives his defense, Felix says, I'm going to put you back in jail. We're going to figure this out. I'm going to come back to you in a few days. Felix comes down. He's actually visiting with the Apostle Paul, and he brings his wife that is also a Jew. And in verse 25, this is what, Paul, this is what it says. And Paul talked about righteousness and self-control. Righteousness and self-control. I'm blown away by this verse because Paul's on trial. He's having a conversation with the governor that's going to decide his fate. The governor is so impressed by the Apostle Paul that he brings his wife to meet him and to have conversation and to ask his wife, I'm sure, what do you think's going on with this guy? And so you would think whenever this is what's happening to Paul and these folks that are going to decide, is he set free, is he in prison, or are we going to kill him? that he would probably lay out some huge defense of how he's actually lived his life. But he doesn't. Do you know what he talks about? Righteousness and self-control. Do you know what he's saying? He is saying, I have been changed by the cross, the empty tomb, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Because only those three coupled together bring righteousness into our life. Only the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit is what allows us to have self-control. And Paul is making the defense here that he is actually nothing, but instead it is God's Spirit living inside of him. And so how do we live this out? Three fast things. I'm going to go through them very, very fast here. You have to ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. If you have been, uh, if you have, if your life, if your sins have been forgiven because of the cross, 
If you have accepted the power that is available in the resurrection, the next step is you have to ask God to fill you with His Holy Spirit. Because it's only the Holy Spirit that enables us to live the life that God is asking of us. So we have to go the next step, and you have to ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. The next thing, the second thing here, is you have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit every day and in every decision. And this is where the rubber meets the road in our walk with God. We would say that this is self-control. And the only way that we apply self-control, we live that out in our life, is through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And so it's in these moments where life is hard, and it's these moments when the enemy is coming at you, and you just want to bow up, and you want to say, come on, let's, let's go toe-to-toe in this. That's when we have to say, hold on, God, just a second. I need self-control. I, that's only available to me through the infilling of your Holy Spirit. And so I need you right now in this moment. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what Paul is talking about to the governor and his wife that's deciding his fate. You've got to have self-control. And the last one is righteousness. You have to seek to live a life of obedience and holiness. But that step only comes after the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and it's the infilling of the Holy Spirit that gives us self-control. Self-control is what brings God's righteousness in our life, and none of this is possible without the combination of the cross, the empty tomb, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, don't leave. Please, don't leave Jerusalem until you have received the Holy Spirit in your life. How many times have you been content to walk out of this room without the infilling of the Holy Spirit? Thinking it was a bad week, I'll just do better this week. And then you come back the next week, and you think it wasn't as good, good of a week as I thought it was going to be. And so I'm just going to try even harder this time. Listen, you don't have to try. You just have to be filled with the Spirit. That's all God's asking. Because you can't do it on your own. You cannot try and try and try again. Because trying in the flesh brings failure every time. The only thing that succeeds is the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And you know, it's true for every single one of us. Whenever we stumble and we fall, there's always a cross. And whenever there's a cross, there's always an empty tomb with resurrection power. And whenever there's resurrection power, there's always the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The question for us is, are you willing to accept what God has available to you? So I want to end asking you this question. Where does the enemy have even the slightest bit of power in your life? Where has the enemy just got his foot in the door? And where is the enemy attacking and knocking 
and trying to get a foothold. I think throughout this morning, the Lord through his Holy Spirit has spoken to each one of us. I've, I've prayed for that, and I wholeheartedly believe that. But my question for you today is, are you ready for the self-control and righteousness that's available through the infilling of the Holy Spirit to overcome the power of sin? Charles Wesley was right. He breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the prisoner free. Are you ready to walk free through the cross, the empty tomb, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit? Thanks for joining us at Whitechapel Church Online. We pray that today's sermon blessed you and that you'll continue to join us as we lean into God's Word together. Until next time, have a great week and be blessed.